Welcome to the Living Hope Church podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. We pray that you are blessed by the sermon. Uh, We act as a resource, um, this podcast, to provide you with weekly sermons from our church um, and that you would be encouraged on your drive to work or encouraged at home when you're cleaning, that this would be an encouragement for you. And so we pray that you were blessed by the sermon today. So let's get into the sermon. So, what I prayerfully planned as my introduction this morning, um, I'm going to change it, and um, and I'm pausing just because I'm like, man, should I? Should I just go with what laid on my heart? Just so I'm just going to go with it. Okay, going to trust God. It's him and not just me. But um, last night I was, I began to reread a book uh, that's fairly new. It's called um, uh, Spiritual Authority, Partnering with God to Release the Kingdom uh, by Dr. Rob Reamer. Uh, Reamer, Dr. Reamer teaches at uh, one of the Alliance uh, seminaries across the country. He's, uh, I believe, over on the East Coast. Um, Alliance Seminary, again, we're Christian and Missionary Alliance, and we have several seminaries attached to our denomination, and he teaches for them. Um, I highly recommend it, um, but uh, he opens up the book with several points, and it's connected to uh, our series that we're beginning this morning on the book of Colossians. And, uh, and I don't think, uh, had I not done some of the kind of background research this past week getting ready for this series... Uh, there were some things about the letter, about the context of why Paul wrote that I was not aware. And, uh, and so in my research, I was like, oh, this is, I didn't know this. This is really cool. So, um, and I think it touches on to our world today. And so that's why I want to read some sections from here because it connects to what we're all experiencing. For those who have grown up in the church, um, many of you, we're, uh, I think we're plainly aware that uh, the church, in, at least in Western context, in Western civilization, we're losing ground. All the major denominations, decreasing. There's several pockets, yes, of course, but the American church is declining. We are losing uh, our influence, our voice, so to speak, and we are push, being pushed out to the outskirts of society along the lines of the flat earth society. Uh, yes, the earth is round. It is not flat. Okay, But if I were to stay end up here and make a claim that the earth is flat, you think <laughs> you're messed up, Pastor Matt. Uh, and that's because it's been clearly refuted, and yet there's still some people way out on the fringe who have been marginalized because they still hold that the earth is flat. And that's where we find the church increasingly being located in our culture. And so he opens up the chapter with, um, with some things. So just, uh, I just want to highlight some of these things, again, just to make these connections before we go into Colossians. He says, thankfully, there are places in the world where the church is doing fantastically well, especially in the global south. What he means by that is South America, uh, the, uh, areas of the world that are south of the equator, the church is booming and doing very well. There are churches in North America that are growing rapidly and reaching people for Christ. Yes, we have 
pockets like that, and we praise the Lord for that. But by and large, however, the church in the West is losing ground. Currently, only 40% of Americans are open to church. The percentage is far less in the Northeast, where Dr. Reamer lives. And so he asked the question, what kind of church will it take to reach the 60% of Americans who are no longer interested in church? What kind of church leaders do we need today to turn this trend around? And then he goes on and cites uh, Leslie Newbegin, who is a missiologist. He's somebody who he spent years in Africa, and then he studies, continues to study missions and how to reach the world for Christ, something that all churches are called to do uh, to help everybody know around the world who Jesus is and to help them walk in relationship with Jesus. All right, and he says this inciting Leslie Newbegin. This is Leslie's word. What we have is a pagan society, okay, he's talking about America here, Western civilization, a pagan society whose public life is ruled by beliefs which are false. And because it is not a pre-Christian paganism, but a paganism born out of the rejection of Christianity. So notice the shift, all right? Um, the early church dealt with a paganism that was pre-Christian, meaning they had no idea about Jesus. And they were able to gain a lot of ground by sharing the gospel. Uh, so, so their people's slates were kind of blank. They're like, oh, what's this new thing? They learned about Jesus and many received. So that, so that in a few centuries, Christianity became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. That's a pre-Christian paganism. But now we live in a rejection of Christianity. And so this is a post-Christian kind of paganism. Paganism, simply a way of life apart from God, very secular. Uh, if there's anything supernatural, it's appeal to God's deities, Wiccan, uh, so witchcraft, those sorts of things, that's paganism, all right? And we are living in a time where it's post-Christian paganism. Let me continue on, just a... <clears throat> But a paganism born out of the rejection of Christianity, is, it, it is far tougher and more resistant to the gospel than the pre-Christian pagans, with which foreign missionaries have been in contact during the past 200 years. Here, without possibility of question, is the most challenging missionary frontier of our time. In other words, we live in a culture where people have experienced Christianity, some form of it, and they've rejected it. And so how do we as Christians help people see Jesus clearly in that kind of a context where their initial response is, uh -uh, I'm not going to listen to it. I've, I've already tried you guys out, and I don't want it anymore. Okay, do you understand what's going on? Uh, what he's flavoring our world. So when we go out there, people reject Christianity because they've seen us. And we haven't helped see, have, we haven't helped show Jesus clearly. They rejected the version of Christianity that, uh, he, as he says, that he grew up in, a version that was often dogmatic and legalistic. See if some of these things resonate with your experience for those of you who have grown up in church. They have turned away from an expression of Christianity that overemphasized truth and underemphasized love. 
they walked away from a brand of Christianity that was built more on precepts than on experiential reality. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. People have not experienced that reality in the church that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The central message to Jesus that he preached and demonstrated. They dismissed the Christianity that all too often presented the gospel without a demonstration of power. So let me skip ahead here to another thing that he says. So he goes on to how do we reach? This is this question. How do we reach such a world that we are called to reach to with the gospel? He says this, I do not believe we will reach this increasingly large percentage of people, the 60% who are closed off to the truth, closed off the church, excuse me, without a demonstration of power and a manifestation of Jesus' love. Won't happen without those things. In a postmodern, pluralistic, syncretistic society, most people are convinced that all deities are the same, that all paths lead to heaven, if they believe in an afterlife at all. People will not be convinced that Jesus is unique and Lord of all deities unless this truth is demonstrated. Now, I read that because the Colossians were, again, this was a pre-Christian context that Paul was writing to. So it's not exactly our own, but there are some similarities. And so let me, um, with that as kind of an introduction, just kind of, I'm just trying to prime the pumps because Colossians has a lot to say that connects to our world now. That's the point I'm trying to share is that uh, the world we live in is very much the same world that Paul was writing a church to as we look at the book of Colossians. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, again, we just come before you. Speak to us. Give us the ears to listen. May our mouths be silenced for a time that we might hear your voice. I pray this in your name, the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, Paul is writing to a church in Colossae. Where is Colossae? It is in what's modern day, what's now modern day Turkey. Uh, several, maybe I think a few hundred miles east of, of the, uh, sorry, yeah, east of the western coast. The western coast is where Ephesus, the ancient city of Ephesus was located. So just think of Turkey and think it's just a little bit uh, left of center. And that's where it's located. And, um, and so there were, in Acts, we don't have any specific places or times or recordings of Paul actually being in Colossae. And we'll, we'll get to that because he actually, he's writing to a group of people he doesn't know. So um, go ahead and open up to your Bibles to the book of Colossians. It is in the back part of the Bible. Um, start, if, if you find the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, go to Acts, keep going. You'll see some larger letters. And then uh, when you see Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians is the last of those four. All right. Uh, if you want a helpful um, uh, device to help you remember those four books, uh, God eats popcorn cautiously. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. 
Uh, and there's other sayings that you can do that, but just to help you remember the order there. So, um, so we're in Colossians here. And while you're doing that, let me just uh, ask, ask you this question. Have you ever had an exhilarating moment when you accomplished something? Uh, does anybody, can anybody uh, testify? Yeah, there's an exhilarating, exhilarating, like just like, yeah, this is awesome. All right, yeah, see? Uh, let me share with you one. Uh, years ago, uh, I loved rock climbing. And um, in, over in the Hinkley Reservation, that's the, I grew up in Hinkley, there is sledges. And it's a bunch of sandstone cliffs. Uh, they're not very tall, but they're 20 to 30 feet in some places. And there was this one climb uh, that we called, I don't know if it's the official name, but uh, it's called, we called it double overhang. And that's because when you stood underneath it, it went up about eh, maybe 15, 20 feet, and then an overhang came out. And then it went up a few more feet, and then another overhang, and then you reach the top. Um, not an easy climb. It was in an, uh, a, a piece, a large piece of sandstone rock set apart from the other ledges. And so you had to climb up the other side in order to put your anchor uh, where you'd put the rope through so that you can climb up for those of us who need as much help climbing as possible, which is me. Um, and um, so we tried it often, my brothers and I, and there was one time I was able to climb double overhang. And I'll tell you what, I stood on the top of that. My forearms were simply uh, just gone. They, it was uh, very difficult trying to reach out behind yourself, bring yourself up, all that stuff. But I stood on there. And I was like, what an accomplishment. I loved it. I was like, thank you, God. I just enjoyed it so much. It was an exhilarating moment where I accomplished something that I'd worked for. And so I think all of us can, can connect with that. Um, and you know what? In the Bible, we see that the 12 disciples, so the 12 guys that hung out with Jesus, they had also experienced exhilarating moments of accomplishment. And we see this in Luke chapter 10, where they come back from Jesus sending them out. And they got to see demonstrations of power wherever they went through the name of Jesus. They experienced people getting healed, and demons leaving. And they said, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, they were coming back rejoicing. This was an amazing time that they had. They experienced an exhilarating moment of accomplishment through Jesus. I mean, can you imagine this? Things that don't normally happen on day to day. They were seeing supernatural things happen through them over a period of time, wherever town that they went. I think we'd all be exhorted. It'd be amazing if we were to be in their shoes. And so as we talk about, you know, as we notice that they experienced the, the power of Jesus' name through healing and exorcism, casting out demons. And so it's this exorcism of demons that comes into play with Colossians. And so that's, this is the bridge I'm trying to make here. But exorcism was not unique to Jesus. Did you know that? that there were exorcists before Jesus came onto the scene. In fact, uh, the Jews, the Jews had uh, prescribed things of how to exorcise demons. And so that's, this is some of the background, historical background I want to touch on to fill you in. In Acts 19, we meet a guy named Sceva, S-C-E-V-A, and he had seven sons. 
Um, and this is in, takes place in the city of Ephesus, which again is just a few hundred miles away from Coloss Colossae. And in this account, in fact, let me turn there. Let me read it to you. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but if you want, Acts 19. Acts 19, 11 through 16. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs, you know, Kleenexes or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. That's pretty amazing stuff. Um, then some, verse 13, then some of the itinerant, okay, what's an itinerant? Somebody travels around from city to city. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on these seven sons, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Not something I want to experience. And so the, uh, here's some things to keep in mind. Here's why I turn to this story. Uh, during Jesus' time, there were Jewish people who were exorcists going around and casting out demons. And so here we see that in Ephesus, some of them tried to do it by Jesus' name, whom Paul proclaims. And they find out, and, and the word adjure is not a command, it's a request. You know, I adjure you, please come out. It wasn't a command, but the Spirit said, look, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but I don't know who you are. So just keep in mind that there were Jewish itinerant exorcists going around at the time of scriptures going on. Now, so what does this mean? How does this point to Colossians? There are clues in Colossians that there is an issue going on that Paul's trying to address. Now, in other letters, in Corinthians, for example, we saw many issues that Paul brought up to the Corinthians that they had written to him about. And so he writes a letter and says, here are the answers to some of your questions. All right, so Paul responds through writing. Other times he writes to encourage. But most, more often than not, there is something, some kind of issue or problem that that church is, uh, that Paul has heard about. And so he writes a letter to address what's going on. And that answers the question, why did Paul write this? And why is it included in God's word? And so that's why we look at this background, because in order to interpret, to understand properly what Paul is addressing in the letter, we need to know the answer to that question as best as we can. Why did he write it? Because we can misinterpret if we, if we interpret something in this letter that is not part of that original context, we have misinterpreted God's word. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to handle the word of truth accurately. And because of the connection points of what's going on in the Colossian culture and to our culture today, 
That's why I'm dealing with this background information so we can see the connections so that we don't misinterpret this when we cover through the sections. All right? So with Sceva, let's turn to the next thing. There was a Jewish tradition about how they exercise demons. And we have an ancient document called the Testament of Solomon where we get at least an idea of how they did this. You know, it'd be nice to know, how did they exercise? If Jesus wasn't around, we know uh, that in Scripture, Jesus exercised demons. He cast them out through his name, by his power and authority, and his followers did that by his name. So how did these people who didn't know Jesus, either prior or during, how did they do it? And here's what they did. They used the names of angels. And this is what we get in the Testament of Solomon, we get a record of instructions, kind of like a, um, a diagnostic manual for how to cast out which demons for which ailment. And uh, so let me read from you a quote. I'm going to quote it here, an article um, by a gentleman named Clinton Arnold. He's a professor at Biola University, a theology professor, and this is one of his areas of study. So this is what he says about the Testament of Solomon. Um, that uh, he said, so, so how it lays out the diagnostics is that it, uh, it lays out as Solomon is speaking and he speaks to each demon and, and then he addresses it, okay? So Solomon interrogates 36 demons, requiring them to share their assignments, what they are, have been assigned to do, what kind of affliction they have been assigned to do and how they can be defeated, these 36 demons are astral spirits and correspond to every 10 degrees of the heavenly sphere. All right, let me pack, unpack this a little bit. In the ancient world, the circle meant was used to encompass all things, right? A circle goes all the way around. It encircles something. So when you see 36 and how it corresponds to every 10 degrees of a sphere, what it's trying to communicate is that these are the basic elements. This encapsulates kind of the bedrock. You know, in, in physics, we look at molecules, strings, the things at the bedrock of physical material reality. If you're playing with Legos, you know, we go to the little blocks that are used to build everything else. All right? That's what these these. These, thir these 36 demons are men. These are the foundational starting places of affliction of the demons afflicting other people by these 36 things. And that's why the circle encompasses, it's the foundation, it's the bedrock. They describe themselves by this Greek word stoikia. Now the reason why this is significant is that Paul uses this word Twice, very significantly twice in Colossians. And so it's that connection where scholars think that this is what's going on in the background, that, that Jewish exorcists had come to Colossae and that some of the Jews that were living there knew about them and were trying to follow or at least knew about how to do exercise in the names of angels like Michael, Gabriel, and there are several others that I'm not familiar with. But this is how they did it, okay? This is how they exercised demons, by using the names of angels to cast them out. And it seems very likely that this was the method that Sceva and his sons would, were using as they would go around to towns in 
Colossae and Ephesus and other areas in modern day Turkey. So now let me try to connect this background. The key things, there were itinerant exorcists going around at the time of Colossae where Paul was traveling. So the church of Colossae would have known about this. These angels' uh, names to use in order to cast out demons and to deal with things. Um, Then they hear about Christ. They hear about Jesus. And he's the name above all names. And they probably experienced Jesus' power in their midst when the gospel was brought to them. In fact, Paul indicates that they did experience those things. And so here we have young believers in Christ just learning about Jesus for the first time, wondering how, what's, what's different? What's, how, how are things different? Because the challenge was Roman culture, which dominated at this time, was first of all pluralistic. It was pluralistic, meaning there are a bunch of different deities. Even the emperor was considered a deity and worshipped in that way. Any major town you went to, there were temples for different deities all over the place. And sometimes people would go from one to the next trying to gain the favor of the gods by offering sacrifices and um, being involved in some way. And so now the question becomes, if you're a young believer, you just heard about Christ and you grew up in that pluralistic culture, The question becomes, well, how do I regard Jesus now in light of this? And what they were doing is that they were syncing the two together. Okay, we're all familiar. Many of us are familiar with syncing our iPads or our phones. And what you're doing when you're syncing a device with something else is you're merging the information from both. Sometimes you have the option to you know, override whatever information, you know, the older stuff with the newer stuff. But syncing is bring two things together. And so that's this phrase, syncretism. Syncretism. And the Roman culture was very syncretistic, meaning they merged. In fact, if you look at the Roman gods, again, this is all background to help you understand. What they did was they took the Greek gods. Again, the Romans took over the Greek culture. And what they did is instead of Uh, With their religion, what they did was they took the Greek gods and put new names on them. And yes, some of the stories are different, but they were very syncretistic. And the Church of Colossae had grown up in that culture, in that syncretistic culture. Maybe you see evidences of syncretism in our world today. What? uh, How do people regard spirituality? Oh, I can just pick and choose. It's like a salad bar, right? And they have their plate of, this is what I believe about the world, and I'm going to take some, some Buddhism. Uh, oh, and there's some elements about Christianity I like. Jesus was a pretty cool guy. And, um, uh, you know, science. I like science, too. I'm going to mix that all in. Right? We live in a pluralistic, syncretistic society. And this is the same world that the Church of Colossae had grown up in. In fact, with uh, the Jewish people also were syncretistic. In fact, we, we have uh, archaeological evidence of amulets that some people would wear that on one side it had these very names of angels to cast out demons, and then on the other side would be names of some of the other gods like from the Romans or from the Greeks on the same amulet. All right, so we, we know that, that some of the Jews were syncretistic, mixing in Jewish tradition with Roman religion. And again, that is called 
syncretism. The assumption is that they're compatible. So the name of Zeus can be used just like the name of Gabriel. So instead of separating themselves from their old way of life and following Christ, the Colossian church, we find, had issues where they incorporated Christ into their previous belief system. And it was apparent in how they regarded Jesus among other angels and gods. So that's the background. So as we begin looking at this letter, we need to know that that's the background. And there's going to be clues in the text to help you see what Paul addresses, that this is going on. So here is a good summary of the letter as a whole. So I'm, I'm trying to show you, here's the forest. Before we start looking at individual trees in the weeks to come, here's the forest. Here's Paul's major point, and that is putting on preeminent power. This is the major theme of the letter of Colossians, putting on preeminent power. And yes, you can say that five times fast. I've done it several times, so it's, I think it's pretty doable. So you can practice that at home if you want. Putting on preeminent power. Putting on preeminent power. All right? I love alliteration. You know, sermons always do that. Anyways, that's the theme. Putting on preeminent power. And that's because Paul is trying to make a distinction about what kind of power is available for the follower of Jesus. And it is very different than what any of them had experienced before, whether it's through uh, Jewish exorcists or the power attributed to Roman and Greek deities. And Paul tries to elevate Christ so that they know that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. He has the name of power so that they can begin to separate and stop being syncretistic, mixing the two and separating themselves in an appropriate way. But he begins his letter with some great encouragement. So I'm going to read verses 3 through 14. So we get some more background. So this is Paul writing, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So here we get a clue. Paul did not travel himself to Colossae, it was Epaphras who brought the gospel, shared it, and a church was raised up. And now Paul is writing to this church because he's heard about the syncretism going on, that they're mixing the two, and they haven't distinguished Christ apart from other names of power. Verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, of God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, 
and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul continues to pray, may you be strengthened with all power. Okay, notice all power. There's other references to power throughout here. And so we see this is part of the theme of the letter. Paul's addressing power in Christ based on who he is. And so he says, verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. Endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. What a prayer. Really, I mean, would you like to read about this? This is somebody who is praying, lifting you up to our heavenly father with these requests that you may be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. What kind of might does God have? It's glorious. It's, it's never ending. He has no weakness at all. So that you may be strengthened according to God's power, to God's glorious might. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in knowledge of God. It goes on and on and on. I think of verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share. That's part of the gospel, right? We cannot earn, or we, cannot, we cannot qualify ourselves to be in God's presence. He has qualified us to be in his presence. That's part of our identity in Christ, something we just spent a number of weeks looking at. We've been qualified by God through Christ because we've been redeemed and forgiven of all of our sin. And so, in your notes, I have rewritten this prayer. So, to, to have it focused to, so that we, you can read it as if it's you praying this prayer. Okay? So, Lord, I ask that I may be filled with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and so on. And here's my challenge to you. Here is a point of application. My challenge to you is to take this prayer, keep it in your Bible, and on a daily basis, just pray through it once. Okay, this is my challenge to you. Pray this prayer and just be asking the Lord, Lord, I ask that you fill me with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that I may walk in a manner worthy of you. All right, so that's one point of application for you because God wants to speak to each of us. And this prayer really asks for some really powerful things. So my challenge is to take this and to meditate and pray this prayer that the Lord would do these things that Paul prayed for the Colossian church, that you ask these things of God and allow him to work and see, see what God does with this prayer. All right? That's the first step. It's a challenge. Yeah. Um, here are some questions, too, as we think about the context. So when we think about when Paul says, may you be strengthened with all power according to God's might, a question that follows from that is this, are you living your life in your power? Are you living your life in your power? Here's what that looks like. 
When you wake up, wake up in the morning, okay, I need to do this, I need to do that, I need to do such and such. You're looking to you. That's how you live life in your own power. When you come across a problem, boy, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Man, I got to think of something. I got to do, ah, what am I going to do? Okay, um, uh, I got to do this, I got to do that. Gotta, uh, I'm thinking about how I am going to do it. That is you living your life in your own power. Boy, uh, somebody who I thought was my friend said something mean to me over social media. How do I get them back? That is you living in your own power. Okay? Have I illustrated enough? It is the default position of our hearts. It is how we are born into the world, living in our own strength and power. But when the gospel comes, when we receive the gospel, the word of truth, we're no longer the old person. We are now new. And there is a new way of life where we don't live in our own power because we don't got it. We're going to fail. We're going to mess up miserably. We're not going to experience the life that God wants for us when we live in our own power. It is when we trust. So the antidote to living in our own power is to trust. Where we say, God, I trust you today. I trust you with eating breakfast, getting dressed, getting ready for work, any activity, writing this email, responding to a social media post that really hurt my feelings. I'm going to trust in you to do what you want me to do rather than what I feel like doing. That is the change that God calls us to, where we are walking in his strength and power and not trusting in the way that we want to respond to people or live our lives. But it starts with the question, have you been living in your own strength and power? Guess what? We do that with the Christian life. We try to live the Christian life in our own strength and power. God, I'm going to pray to you right now. I'm going to do better. I'm going to be a better Christian. I'm going to share my faith. I'm going to be a witness. All these things. But all in my strength and power instead of through God's resources, through his glorious might. And it starts with, okay, God, I'm going to stop trusting myself, depending on myself, and I'm going to depend on you. It starts with that change in direction in our hearts. Yeah, the actions may look the same, but what's going on in the heart, which is where the spirit is dwelling, this is where sanctification, this is where our life change happens, is in the heart is different. When we say, God, I'm going to trust you for this thing. I'm, I'm just, I, I, I don't feel any different, but God, I just, I trust you. And I'm going to take this plan of action. That is the starting point of stopping, depending on your own strength and might and walking in the strength and power of God that is provided through Christ. And that's the switch that needs to happen in our hearts. Are you living your life in your own power? Let me just direct you to Acts 1.8, where Pentecost becomes such a powerful moment where we are clothed with power from on high through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the power for living, and it's depending on a person, not a force, but a person. 
And a second question I want to bring before our attention, given the background and the things that I've tried to sketch out that bring us to this letter in the weeks that come, is have we syncretized, have we mixed our Christianity with American culture that's not Christian in nature? Have we mixed the two? It's something, if we were in Germany, I'd be asking the, a different question. Have we mixed Christianity with German culture? Okay, but because we are Americans here and now, we always need to be attentive to the ways of life of the larger culture around us, and are we being sucked in? Are we being sucked in? And sometimes we justify by saying, oh, I can mix these together. Because our whole culture is at a salad bar picking and choosing, we can easily do the same thing. I'm going to pick and choose. This is a great salad. This is what I want, rather than looking to the Word and seeing what God wants. And then we're surprised when it doesn't work. What? Come on, God. How come you're not working this out? Because we're mixing where it shouldn't be mixed. We're syncretizing. And that is a question we need to always be asking ourselves. So think about this. Think about, um, you know, video games are pretty popular. Do you have, have you thought through a theology, a mindset based on scripture about how we approach games, video games? Video games in and of themselves are not bad. They're not bad. But the way we use them, the way we think about them, the way we approach them can be bad. All right. Um, Let's see, how about a busy schedule? Americans are known for our busyness. Have you gotten sucked into that? Have you gotten sucked into that? Because guess what? If you're getting sucked into busyness and you're wondering, God, man, why don't I feel close to you? There you go. A busy life blocks out God. But we can easily get sucked into the flow of our culture and mix the two. So I present that question to you for you to go home and to think about. You know, just here's my challenge to you. When you walk into your door later today, whenever you get home from this time, just start looking around and saying, okay, is there anything that I've syncretized you, Lord, into a way of life, American way of life that is not from you? It's something we've we need to always be diligent about thinking, thinking about and praying about, Lord, am I mixing where you ought not to be mixed? So are you living your life in your own power? And secondly, have you incorporated Christian beliefs with American culture beliefs? These are Similar questions that Paul is addressing as he wrote this letter to the church of Colossae. His goal is to help them walk faithfully, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord so that the surrounding culture knows that Jesus is the most powerful name in the universe. More powerful than any angel's kind of name more powerful than any of the deities that they called upon Zeus, Mars, Hermes, whatever the case may be. Jesus' name is the most powerful, 
name. His is a name of power. And that's what I mean when I say the name of Jesus means something. It's the name by which we are redeemed, where we can be forgiven of all of our sin. It is the name that wakens us out of our zombie stupor of being this animated dead thing to being alive, to being a true human. It is the name that heals, that brings healing both to our hearts and to any physical ailment that we have. The name of Jesus, that's why we say here, Jesus, Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. We take those roles of Christ very seriously here at this church. We elevate his name as the name above all names that can bring redemption, can bring healing. It didn't just, what happens in scripture can still happen today because Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, help us to walk in the reality of who you are and who Jesus is. Lord, I understand that there are people here that may not have fully understood the things that I've covered right now with this background information, or even just saying that Jesus, that your name is a name of power. And so with that gap of understanding, Holy Spirit, I ask that you touch those people's hearts right now. Just whisper to them, one, that you love them. And two, would you guide them into the words of Jesus like, like Jesus said you would. Holy Spirit, you said your role is to guide us into the words of Jesus, to remind us. So would you help us in bridging that gap? Just making that, that switch in our thinking. Lord, we repent of living in our own power. We repent of depending on ourselves when we call to have faith, have trust in you and you alone. You're the one who can get us out of any mess that we've gotten ourselves into. You are ready and waiting to meet us where we're at, to redeem and to bring freedom. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. So we confess of any yoke of slavery that we've brought upon ourselves. Thank you for your great love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.